So uh, I'm excited to have you here today uh, because um, cannabis reform is something that I've paid attention to for a while now. And it, and it just like hit me like a week ago. I was like, man, why have I not had an episode uh, covering uh, such an important topic that like I already um, that I care about? And uh, yeah, I just came across an article where um, it, I'm a UCLA alum and your name stood out. Oh, nice. Go Bruins. All right. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I, I think, yeah, I saw your name in an article, um, you know, talking about this. And I was like, hey, let me just reach out and, and bring you here. But um, anyway. I'm glad, you, I'm glad you did. It's a conversation worth happen, uh, having. And um, it's uh, it's been something that I've, I've enjoyed being in the middle of. I, I'm, you know, I'm a criminal justice reform and drug policy uh, researcher uh, broadly, and um, the, just over the last five years, it's really this whole cannabis thing has just been hitting from all angles, and I'm uh, I'm glad to be inundated in it. And that you know, as I'm sure we'll we'll get into our conversation, it just touches a lot of areas that are really uh, really important across uh, a ton of different policy dimensions and urban planning, policing, social work. Uh, I mean, you name it. It's like it, it touches so many wonderful things. And uh, it's uh, we're trying we're trying to get it right. And, uh, we're not getting it all right. But uh, well, let's uh, let's try and do our best. Maybe yeah. maybe it starts with this conversation right here. Hey, uh, man, I would love that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, man, I mean, I uh, uh, I thought that, you know, I was thinking like, man, well, this is the type of episode where it's tricky uh, to. Uh, figure out like where I want to start. And I realized that um, right, right. I'm going to, I would like to start with some history. So uh, if you give me a second for people listening and for yourself, Brad, I'm just going to like go through some things that uh, I, I learned uh, preparing for this. Uh, so if I'm not mistaken, I think it was like 1930 or, or 37, some guy named, uh, Harry Ainslinger. And let me uh, uh, preface this by saying that I'm going through yeah. the history because it's important yeah. to understand it's the important. mentality. It's really important. Yeah. Like the mentality facing this and like- How did we like, get here? Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. some guy named uh, Harry Anslinger, uh, he was uh, uh, at the time, I don't know if this still exists, maybe it was replaced by the DEA, but he was the head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. And um, he said yeah. something along the lines. He said cannabis causes people to commit violent crimes and act irrationally and overly sexual. So this is uh, yeah. uh, about a yeah. hundred years ago, and um, you know, obviously, I think like like we've gotten to a point where, to most people, a statement like this today is is uh, basically is a joke, but. For a long time, uh, this was the reality. This is like where, you know, the guy, you know, responsible for uh, determining what narcotics are and, and, the, and, you know, the seriousness of it. This is like, this was a mentality. And then jumping on uh, to, I believe, 1952, uh, uh, where mandatory uh, sentencing uh, and increased punishment were enacted uh, when Congress passed the Boggs Act. And uh, Narcotics Control Act of 56. 
and it made a first-time cannabis possession uh, a minimum of uh, two to ten years with a fine up to twenty grand. And uh, but that was repealed by yeah, Congress yeah. in 1970. So um, yeah. So well, let's let's of, let's actually let's let's back it up even a little bit before that because. Yeah. Uh, in 1937, we, uh, Congress passed the, the Marijuana Act and the fine for possessing or certainly for selling was, you know, back in 1937 was thousands of dollars. And this guy that you mentioned, uh, Anslinger, um, they founded, uh, this, this narcotics division to, uh, enforce these new laws and to figure this out. And there was a, there was a guy by the name of Moses Baca. And uh, back in Denver, and he was the very first person to be uh, to be arrested. And it's you know uh, under these new these new drug laws. And it's it's interesting how the whole thing came about. Is is they were just uh, they were doing an investigation on him aside from anything else, and they ended up going through his property and through his apartment um, in the Five Points area of Denver, and they happened to find about a quarter ounce of weed on. And so he was the first guy who got nailed by this thing. And, um, and Anslinger and guys like him were very much perpetuating this, as you mentioned, this myth about uh, how cannabis was turning people into kind of these crazy criminals, depraved and sex deprived. And, you know, and really, if we back it up just a little bit, even a few decades before this, there was a... There was a revolution happening in Mexico, and we had a lot of people who were fleeing persecution, a real civil war, and getting out of Mexico and coming into um, some Southern American cities, mm. and they were smoking this thing called marijuana. Yeah. And, you know, if we go before that, you know, for decades, we had doctors, American, you know, American Medical Association doctors prescribing cannabis as medicine for a bunch of different things. Yeah. Well, a lot of people didn't like the fact that there were these Mexicans coming up into American cities and smoking this thing called marijuana. And it was really, it was kind of the first time that it was really racialized. And uh, you combine that into the connection be that was made by guys like Anslinger and by you know the film industry and by other people who are sort of perpetuating this, uh, this myth about cannabis was that... Uh, there was the jazz scene. There were a lot of uh, there were a lot of black musicians or a lot of black artists who were being connected with this cannabis thing. So it became a way to sort of demonize uh, Mexicans and blacks and connecting them with this cannabis thing at a time when we really did have a legitimate scare. And you know we can get into the the later history about this thing um, about opium and about uh, about harder drugs. And there was really it was really a problem. But that was the beginning of when they sort of started to kind of merge and confound and confuse Americans about the marijuana versus cocaine and, and heroin and, and other drugs that, uh, that, that we had some, some real some real problems happening with at the time. So, yeah, I, I love that you're jumping right into uh, the 30s and the Boggs Act and the 50s and, and sort of where we started going with this thing. You know, as we know, it escalated into something you know, bigger than that after after a very short short amount of time. Yeah, and um, I think that actually might be. Yeah, I think someone calling me. Uh, I feel like yeah. I can hear yeah, it through this. You're going. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, um, but uh, oh yeah, someone was calling me. Um, so yeah, 
the history is uh, I was dumbfounded because yeah, like you said about jazz uh, and and uh, Harry Anslinger, um, he he actually said that yeah that uh, jazz is an evil genre and that uh, uh, minorities um, were using uh, you know like like going to the clubs and enjoying this mm-hmm. and that like mm-hmm. they, like the whole thing just had to be shut down and um, and again you know there's a there's like a lot of smaller like things that happen in between this stuff but i guess just like seeing the the big things that happened because obviously i mean between uh 52 and 84 um i guess it's worth mentioning that in, in 1970 uh um yeah yeah congress did repeal those the mandatory penalties but then uh in the reagan administration um that well, was, let, well uh, hold on let's that that's actually a really critical pivot right there okay we actually had a couple of years where we, it was looking like cannabis was going to be decriminalized right. from 70 till uh, really Nixon got into office and uh, he declared, you know, cannabis as the scourge on America and it was, you know, public enemy number one and it was time for a war on drugs. But so between 70 and 72, there was this period where it was like, oh, wow, we really might be like, and, and you talk to people who were involved in public policy and politics back then, they were like, this looked like it was the window where we're actually going to start to legalize. And it went entirely, you know, in the opposite direction after, after Nixon. Yeah. And that, that's right. Because if I, um, remember correctly, I think they were like tying, uh, marijuana to like the hippie movement around that time. And yeah, so they were like, if you smoke weed, you're going to be some like homeless bum who doesn't take showers and uh yeah right yeah absolutely they were able to um you know and, and and some of the really sort of in, insidious things and we look back at some of the commentary of people who are in nixon's cabinet who look back at the way that cannabis was used to to, to demonize um you know and, and i'm gonna paraphrase this but sort of we we knew that we we couldn't go after him for being hippies or for being black, but if we could connect him in with you know on the nightly news with mm-hmm. uh, with marijuana and using drugs, that was our way to sort of marginalize the, these these counterculture movements and to sort of keep the keep the uh, conservative agenda on on track and um, and that was you know that was a real divide in America. I mean the 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 this post World War II generation the. You know, they, these kids were all growing up in the 60s and they weren't taking at, at face value all the uh, the values that maybe their parents grew up with in the 30s and the 40s. And and it was uh, it was a real scary thing for the establishment. And uh, cannabis was closely connected with with a lot of the uh, the imagery and the music and the and the cultural movement of the, of the late 60s and the early 70s. So, yeah. Man, just what, what a wild time. Yeah. And, you know, and. I guess jumping along, uh, something that stood out to me was uh, obviously in the uh, Anti-Drug Abuse Act in 86, um, they reinstated those mandatory uh, prison sentences. Um, and then later on, there was an amendment that uh, created the, which a lot of people know today, the, the three-strike law, um, which, uh, you know, there's mandatory 25 years imprisonment, um, for repeated crimes and uh, including drug offenses, um, and actually something that happened in uh, in terms of decriminalization, 
something that happened in 88. I'm going to pull this up because this Yeah, guy... and, and, and let me just sort of comment on, on the whole uh, escalation into the war on drugs, which really uh, Nixon did a bit on it. And, you know, President Carter was very sort of, you know, the, 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 the pains caused by the, by the sentencing and by the criminalization of, of the drug shouldn't be more uh, shouldn't in, 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 uh, impose more of a harm than the actual use of the drug itself should. Um, but as soon as Reagan got in, um, you know, we, all, we also have to balance this out with the, the broader perspective that uh, crack cocaine was becoming a big problem. Yeah. Where that came from, we could talk about that as well. Uh, but uh, even going back to the time when uh, you know, our, our, mostly our boys were coming back from Vietnam, there was a lot of, a lot of heroin issues when the guys were coming back. And again, there was this conflating of cannabis as sort of the same as the other drugs. And what we see with cannabis and its role in the war on drugs and the escalation towards mass incarceration was cannabis accounts for a large number of the days, a number of arrests over all of those years. It doesn't account for a lot of the days behind bars, but you brought up something really important, which is the three strikes deal. So if I had, let's say, two felonies for something else, and then I get my third felony for selling cannabis, it's still a strike yeah. and I'm still going away for life. And then the other part of this that sort of ties the whole thing in is cannabis, wow. this very smelly, you know, very obvious drug that you can pick up if you, know, if you pull a car over in a traffic stop or you're coming over to, uh, to do a wellness check on someone at their house, it smells. And so it gives you the pretext, it gives you the opportunity to come in and search further, to search the vehicle or to search the home, and the drug dogs could pick it up in two seconds. And so cannabis was sort of this inroads. You're like, the authorities, the police, they didn't really care that much about the, the pot, but it gave them the opening, the pretext to come in and look for guns and for harder drugs and other things that they did want to find. And so there was this really sort of odd, you know, the, the redheaded stepchild uh, of, of all the drugs was cannabis, but it's sort of by clumping them all into one, it gave a lot of police the opportunity to, to get involved. And that's not to make light of, you know, some of the, some of the, the money that was made in the organized crime and stuff that, that, that was connected with moving and trafficking cannabis that was also being used for, for other things like harder drugs or weapons, money, uh, human trafficking. Um, you know, those, those are all things that, that, that were happening, but all again, because they were all uh, lumped together in prohibition is why you have organized criminals that are able to work with all these products together. You stop, you stop criminalizing cannabis and you move it into licensing and taxation and regulation. All of a sudden it's not a part of that whole, that whole pantheon. Yeah. Wow. I mean, and, and yeah, with what you're saying, uh, that makes sense. Cause I mean, uh, I, it, it must've been around that, that period. Um, uh, in Reagan's era where I guess uh, that argument of weed being a gateway drug to uh, uh, doing these harder drugs. Um, and yeah, there's this, uh, I, I just pulled up here uh, something I, I saw a few days ago that I found interesting because I think one of the th big things I want to talk to you about is um, I think, uh, you know, I think the average person sometimes thinks that when it comes to like government that like it's like a matter of intelligence like how does the government not know that like weed is you know uh so much weaker than these drugs like have they ever like smoked a joint or been around someone who has 
And obviously, like, I think there's, there, you know, as you would know, there's so much more to that as to, like, why something might be criminalized. But, yeah, this, um, <clears throat> this guy here in 88, uh, DEA Chief Administrative Law Judge Francis Young uh, ruled in favor of moving cannabis to a Schedule II classification, uh, finding that marijuana in its natural form is one of the safest therapeutically active substances known to man. And he further concluded, the evidence in this record clearly shows that marijuana has been acceptable as capable of relieving the distress of great numbers of very ill people. And it would be unreasonable for the DEA to continue to stand between those sufferers uh, and the benefits of this substance uh, in light of the evidence. So I, I say that because... Going back to 88, we have this guy who's like at the top of the DEA saying like, what the fuck are you guys doing? This drug is like not what you think it is. And so clearly it, it's not like, oh, well, like no one knew up until 2014 or something that weed was, you know, relaxed. So I now like, you know, put the ball in your court into like, you know, maybe like you if you can explain the inner workings of the politics that goes into criminalizing something and, and, and yeah. allowing it yeah. to remain criminalized. It's wild. It's, it's really wild. And it's such a, such an important part of our American history. And, and, you know, as you point out, maybe not something that's taught in, in, uh, you know, in your civics lessons in, in, in high school. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, going back, we had the LaGuardia report way back in the early uh, 1900s. We had the Schaefer report in 1970. I mean, these are big government reports that are basically saying what you're saying, which is, yeah, it's, you know, it's not great. Is, is this the best thing in the world? No, but is this something for us to be locking people up over? Is this, uh, you know, something for us to be uh, you know, com completely uh, criminalizing and 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 basically pushing into the unlicensed market. And 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 here's here's the reality we just have got to um, understand is that Americans and people around the world love cannabis, and there are tens of millions of American cannabis consumers. There are there are almost there are almost a hundred million American consumers just that use it have used it in the last year and of course the amount of people who have used it in the past month or in the past week or in the past day we have data on that as well and in fact it's interesting to look at who uses it we have a very small group of people 20 percent of the consumers drive 80 percent of the market that's what we call the pareto principle these are people who are using every day they're using a decent amount some of that's medical some of that is not medical, and some of it's just people using as much as they want. And some of those people say, hey, you know what? I'm using more than I'd like. I'd like to cut back, and I'm having a hard time with it. Mm -hmm. Some people are saying, hey, you know what? It's interfering with my work, or I'm spending too much money on it. Okay, great. Let's make sure that those people get the help that they need. But you know what? We don't need to be locking up the other 95% of the people right. because 5% of the people are having an issue with it. We don't do it with alcohol. We don't do it with tobacco. I mean, the social damage from cannabis use is so small. You know, people don't beat up their wives and they don't drive cars into trees, for the most part, using cannabis. It doesn't mean we don't have a few dum-dums here and there that people make bad choices or they're not as productive as they might, you know, as they might be. 
But we've got to be really careful with how we use the instrument of the criminal justice system. It is a really powerful tool. And I can't think of anything that is more destructive to an individual, whether you, you talk about economically, about educational outcomes, you talk about public health outcomes, you talk about the, 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 the benefits that you get for an individual versus the harms of just introducing them to the criminal justice system. It is the worst thing that you can do for anyone. Uh, you know, putting someone behind a cell, arresting them, fingerprinting them, putting them into the system. It is nothing has worse outcomes than introducing someone or getting them into the criminal justice system. It is predictive of everything else of getting arrested in the future, of having poor outcomes, of not being able to get housing, about not being able to get uh, public benefits or scholarships, or to you can lose to this day in states where there's legal cannabis. You can still lose your kids to the foster system because you're using cannabis. You can lose your job. You can get you know a positive drug test. You can lose your job. And I'm not just talking about government jobs. I'm talking about good, private, good-paying jobs we can get into that whole issue, but we're using this thing to demonize people, to criminalize them, and it's not productive. Now, I'm going to be the first person to say, on, a, on the most balanced way, there is bad stuff about chronic cannabis use. There is. And the science is coming out. We're, we're starting to understand that you know, it's, it's, it's correlated with higher incidences of, of uh uh, mental health issues, especially for young people, uh, triggering psychosis, detachments from reality, um, amotivational syndrome, you know, people not doing the kind of work that they should be or that they could be or that they care about, uh, memory issues, cognitive issues. Uh, there's stuff with smoking uh, that we didn't know before that we're starting to understand now. Uh, lung damage, um, respiratory illnesses like vaping. Uh, these These are things that we can't just wish them away because we're like, ah, go light on cannabis. There are problems. And we got, we got to be square about that. But there's so many wonderful benefits that we, we don't want to preclude um, certainly our medical consumers from getting. Um, I just, you know, and, and I don't want to sidetrack too much because we can get into a lot of different things. But there are a few different areas that we have a really strong basis of evidence that cannabis is good for. Chronic pain. Uh, muscle spasticity and nausea, and these are three big things. And I'm just gonna I'm just gonna focus on chronic pain for two seconds because we have an opioid crisis right now that is killing tens of thousands of Americans, and opioids are not a good long term solution for chronic pain, yeah. but cannabis is for a lot of people, not for everyone. But we should really be focusing on trying to do some harm reduction, on weaning people off of opioids and maybe trying cannabis instead, trying other things. But we've got to bring the benefits of cannabis for autism, for, for all kinds of things. Talk to Dr. Bonnie Goldstein. Talk to Sherry Afai. Talk to, there are a lot, you know, a lot of legitimate doctors out there doing good work with cannabis for people. And we need to get this out into the public. And people have got to start appreciating it for what it is. And when we talk, when, when we go back to the issue of sort of criminalization and are continuing pushing this thing into the shadows, we've done that in the name of public safety. And we've done it in the name of, as you pointed out, 
these sentencing um, escalations and sort of this idea about cannabis as a gateway drug. Well, the science isn't there and it's never been there about cannabis as a gateway drug. It doesn't mean that a lot of people who use opioids now didn't use cannabis in the past. They did. Guess what? They also skipped school. Uh, they also drank a lot. They smoked a lot of cigarettes and engaged in other risky behaviors. Correlation is not causation. We know it. Let's stop making the claims that aren't there. Um, and let's, let's really have a sober, real conversation about these things. And let's be careful, number one, with using criminal justice, using incarceration, arrest, probation, parole, all of these things as tools in the war against something that is not inflicting a ton of harm on society. You want to go after something? Go after alcohol. You want to go after something? Go after nicotine. Go after cigarettes. Those things are both killing hundreds of thousands of Americans every year. They're causing tons of accidents, you know, tons of problems. Cannabis isn't doing that. And my last little bit here that I, I want to be, you know, really clear about, we're not sure yet that cannabis being commonplace and being accessible to people is necessarily in lieu of alcohol use. So people say, well, I'd rather someone were smoking a joint and or taking an edible than drinking. Well, the evidence is might be the contrary in some of the studies I've seen that people are both smoking more and drinking more. That's not good either. You know, we don't want people cross-faded on, on weed and on, on alcohol at the same time. Uh, first of all, the driving outcomes aren't great. The public health outcomes aren't great. And you talk about a not wonderful combination between sort of the reduction and impulsivity uh, that we get from alcohol, along with sort of the relaxed attitudes of, of cannabis. Maybe, maybe not the greatest thing, but cannabis on its own, it's not killing people. Yeah. Um, it, we, we, it's in fact is not killing anyone, but that's not to say, I mean, just the cannabis use itself. That's not to say that people when they're high aren't doing some dum dums and, and making some, making some stupid choices like driving or doing other, other things they shouldn't be doing if they're, if they're too high. Uh, you can hurt someone while you're high. That's for sure. You can trip and fall and hurt yourself. You can do some some real silly stuff. You can also make the choice to use other drugs or to use uh, too much alcohol if you're a little stoned as well. So let's be careful about it. But, you know, like we're having right now, let's have an honest adult conversation. And let's not try and scare the crap out of kids uh, just, you know, by, by you know, bringing back uh, just say no and, and, and war on drugs rhetoric because it's, uh, it's, it's ridiculousness. Yeah, absolutely. And. I'm I'm uh I'm really glad that you uh brought up the fact that you know uh that there are these side effects to uh to to marijuana. Um actually the the last episode I did was with a, a psychologist that was talking about um like her expertise is in identifying uh early indicators uh for people that might, you know, one day uh, have like really severe mental illnesses. And we were, uh, when it comes to like schizophrenia and psychosis, they're learning um, that, that marijuana, you know, uh, like chronic use of it um, might really uh, uh, make some people uh, more susceptible to some of those illnesses. And that being said, I think one of the biggest harms of like sensationalizing marijuana and making it this like big culture war is that it's 
by swinging to one side and uh, saying that like it's this evil, terrible thing, you then like got this response that like we saw in pop culture from like the, the 90s till now of marijuana being this totally harmless drug. Like so, so and I think like, like so, so to it's and it's unfortunate because the demonizing of it gets in the way of just pure research and where like now like like these things that we're finding out now we should have found out years and years ago. But this is kind of like the first you know I would say the last what ten years or so is like really the the you know, time, like, where people have really been able to research uh, 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 cannabis without, like, any major disruptions or, or, or stigma attached to it. But, yeah, I mean, it, it's just, it's unfortunate because that that demonization of it led to uh, a response in where a lot of people, you know, became chronic users because they really believed that it was just this, like, harmless uh, uh, drug. And, and we're finding out that it's it's not, even though it is better than you know, basically everything out there. So, yeah, it's yeah. Cu- culturally yeah. it'll be interesting to see how this continues to. Evolve. Yeah, I, you know, I, you're bringing up a really good point, and uh, I, I, uh, I spent a lot of time researching the industry. I mean, I talked to a lot of people in the industry: growers, manufacturers, distributors, uh, testers, uh, retailers, um, and in California, anyway. You know, we, we it's twenty year head start from compassionate care which was our, uh, our, our act in 96, which opened up the world for medical cannabis. Uh, speaking of dum-dums, I mean, our legislature decided not to regulate it at, like, at all. Mm. So they said, okay, well, let's satisfy this medical consumer market. And then they made a list of qualifications for treatment with cannabis. And by the time they were done with the list, it was basically like, and anything else you might want to use cannabis for. So it's like, basically, anyone who wanted a recommendation could get one. And doctors knew that. So it was like, come on in, you know, pay 50 bucks, 100 bucks, whatever it used to be. Now it's like 30 bucks, right? Um, and I'll get your recommendation. Just walk in, don't say a word. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions, right? Are you suffering any pain? Great. Sounds good. You got a recommendation. Uh, you know, go out front. They'll get you your paperwork. You can walk next door and and and, and fill your fill your recommendation. It's not real medicine. That's, that doesn't look anything like real medicine. And so we had consumers coming in and getting recommendations uh, who many wanted to just use it for adult use purposes. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but you know, that was the legal loophole, but we missed out on the opportunity to create something that looks like real medicine where a doctor, you come in and say, Hey doc, you know, my, my shoulders are a real mess from this thing, or I just hurt myself in, uh, you know, playing sports or, you know, I'm really, uh, I'm, I'm having an issue with this nausea thing. I've been taking chemotherapy or, you know, whatever it is, right. There are people with real concerns where cannabis can be real medicine. And then a doctor might say, Hey, why don't you try these two things and some physical therapy? Oh, that's not working. Okay. Well, why don't we, let's see if, uh, how about, three milligrams of THC, CBD, three times a day in a tincture, come back in three weeks and let me know if it works. That's real medicine, right? Yeah. No one's getting anything like that. 
and they're not still not to this day unless you go to a real cannabis doc who is really treating you like a real patient so that's thing one i mean we've got we we should create a system in which people who have real symptoms and real problems can get real medicine and that cannabis is one of those things in the sort of the you know the the quiver of tools uh, one of the tool in the toolbox that uh, that you, that you can utilize for medicine the other piece is is that just because it's a plant doesn't mean it was you know made by god and can do no wrong and you know there there are plenty of plants and plenty of things out there you know trust me you walk out there you start pulling mushrooms out of the woods you know maybe one in 10 of them are something that's edible the other ones you shouldn't and some of them might kill you there's lots of things in nature that God made that that's not going to be. Uh, alcohol is a naturally occurring compound that happens when sugars are broken down from fruits. You know, just because we bottled it and put it into wine and beer bottles and vodka bottles, you know, that doesn't mean that, you know, that, it, that it's okay for you. Tobacco is a naturally occurring substance. Marijuana is a naturally occurring weed. Um, it doesn't mean that it's something that's good for you. And I just want to be clear about something that we have it's called the endocannabinoid system and there are all these re, re, you know these receptors in our body it's called that because it it mirrors what happens with cannabis products but the endocannabinoid system exists in every vertebrae on the planet and it's a regulatory system that governs our response to different things and when we take cannabis it can calm things down it calms down nausea it calms down our pain responses. And in fact, we talk about jazz. It starts to slow down the brain a little bit so that you start to recognize patterns and you start to open it quiets down some of the noise. Right. So there's this wonderful stuff that cannabinoids can do for our body that enhance this naturally occurring endocannabinoid system, which was only discovered in the last 40 years, hmm. only the last 50 years by, you know, some... Uh, Israeli doctors. And so we can stimulate it and we can do things with it, but it doesn't mean that we want to be bombarding our naturally occurring endocannabinoid system like all day, every day with like, you know, a hundred milligrams of cannabis. It's like, no, right. your system can't handle it. It can't deal with all that oversaturation. So give your body a chance to do what it needs to do. And if you need cannabis for something, a lot of these medical treatments are low cannabis indications. Mm -hmm. You know, you can you want to deal with pain with low milligrams. You want to start there because we will, you know, we'll quickly build a tolerance to it. There are other things like autism and things like that where you want to be hitting it with higher milligrams. But um, but it's not it's not good medicine for me to say, hey guys, um, man, you gotta you gotta you hurt your uh, knee playing soccer or whatever. Well, go down and uh, why don't you hit that with some gummies, man? Those 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 will take care of your knee, maybe, but uh, but maybe not. And I'm not a doctor, and I shouldn't be telling you. And guess what? The bud tenders shouldn't be telling you what to take for your medical conditions either. They're not doctors. They may have seen a lot of people come in for something. They may have used a lot of these and said, "Oh, that was really nice for me. It helped me sleep this last weekend." Great. Share that information, but let's be honest about who's offering the the information. And let's be honest about what real medicine is and that there is this amazing plant with, with this, the entourage effect, all of these cannabinoids in this, you know, in the combinations that exist in the whole plant. You talk, hear people talking about whole plant, 
whole plant is the thing that's people are getting a lot more relief from than you know maybe some of the extracted or isolated thc or isolated cbd or cbn or cbg or whatever it is that you think that you want to be taking um again let's encourage good medicine let's encourage good research and as customers let's not be scared to ask the questions and try and find out you know the terpene profile the cannabinoid profile that works for me it might not work for you and that's the other thing like these things react different with everyone and so it's not like alcohol where we can say well, if you're under 0.08, you're good to drive. Or it's not like ibuprofen where we say, oh, 400 milligrams and that should take care of your, you know, your arthritis or what, you know, whatever it is. Um, they're all different. And so Gorilla Glue and Lemon Haze and, you know, whatever it is you're smoking or you're taking, uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to react different with different people. And we don't really know yet if there's female, male differences, higher weight, lower weight, different race, uh, different... Uh, you know, different, different ages, you know, what, whatever it is, we're not really sure yet. I really hope we can collect that data and start figuring out kind of this thing might just be the right thing for someone under 35 who's got arthritis or someone over 60 who has nausea or a woman who has XYZ. And my last little statement right there is women, I know you've been hearing that, you know, uh, when when you're pregnant or you have some uh, you know you have some morning sickness and stuff that taking cannabis is okay, let's be real careful with that because a lot of doctors right now are saying it's a real bad time to introduce cannabis to the fetus. Um, so maybe not, but talk to your doctor, see what they think. Um, again, we got to be real careful about saying, hey, it's a plant from God, and there's nothing wrong. <laughs> you know, nothing bad can happen with a little weed. Uh, you know. It's a fun sort of cultural place to live in and a great mentality to live in, like live and let live and let's be cool about it, but let's also be careful. It's a real drug. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think um, something I'm just really curious about, because it's hard to understand this as someone who's, you know, uh, uh, I'm not, you know, in, in, the, in the law profession in any way or or a part of government. So, you know, that being said, like when trying to imagine, uh, you know, in 2024, um, well, I mean, I would say probably since even the early 2000s, it's, it's probably been generally it's accepted by most people in the government that weed is, is not as, uh, uh, nearly as big of a problem as, uh, the, the other drugs that it's scheduled along with. And what, so, you know, with your experience and knowledge, like what, with people being able to agree upon that personally, even people in government, but then there's still this, there's nothing happening in terms of moving in the, this direction of, of uh, uh, um, uh, you know, like, for example, I know now they're trying to make it a schedule three instead of a schedule one. But in your experience, if if everyone knows this thing, why is there still so much, so many problems when moving forward and finally doing what we need to do? Yeah, that's that's a, it's a great question, and I, I think uh, you know I'm just going to start by saying government is not a monolithic entity, mm -hmm. and. You know, just look at the state of California. You know, the voters 
passed Prop 64 and we said we want legal cannabis and we're going to tax and regulate it in, in, the, in these different ways and we're going to create a, a department to regulate it and the whole thing. But we're a dual licensing state. And we've got, I don't even know the number, we got like 400 municipalities, 500, I mean, it's crazy, right? Yeah. Every single one of those municipalities has the power to either license, tax, and regulate or maintain a ban on yeah. cannabis. And way over half of them are not licensing anything, certainly not retail. So you get down to this very small decision, which is you might have a city council with seven people or nine people. You might have three or four on board, but you also might have a couple soccer moms and hockey dads and whoever who are like, yeah, you know what? I don't want the kids having cannabis. This is really something uh, I'm not sure about. And the wait and see approach has sort of ground legalization to a halt in some of these states mm. where there's any, any type of Massachusetts is the same. It's not officially the same, but you're talking about people who, and, and this is where you have to think about this politically. What is the benefit for me as a council person in a small town to legalize cannabis versus the downside? The upside is, Hey, you're cool. Thanks, man. You really reflected what the voter said. The downside is, you're the evil bastard who, uh, you know, got our kids hooked on drugs. Yeah. And that narrative is still out there. So talk about fear as, as, as an elected official. Uh, it's far more powerful. You talk to Earl Blumenauer, U.S. representative out of Oregon. This guy's been working for 40 years to try and get bills passed on cannabis. And it never ranks higher than like number seven. You know, jobs, economy, security inflation, you know, whatever. And then there's this cannabis thing. And it's hard to get council, or sorry, it's hard to get U.S. representatives to step up and do this thing even today, even just to say, let's put together a reasonable banking bill where these cannabis businesses in Colorado and California and Massachusetts and, you know, Illinois, where the customers can come in and pay with a credit card and the businesses can pay their employees with checks and they can open up a bank account. And guess what? They can borrow some money like a real business too. And uh, they're not getting hit with 280E where it looks like they're money laundering. So they can't write anything off except for the cost of goods sold while they're running their business. Yeah. So, I mean, these people who are trying to run these small businesses are being overregulated and not being allowed the common courtesy of running a legitimate business. And so on the political end, and this, and, and, and this is a great question because you go back to what happened with the escalation of the war on drugs, the escalation of mass incarceration, that came from, it is much more politically expedient to be tough on crime. Hmm. And I'm gonna, you know, not in our town, not around my kids, you know, that whole thing, right? So I don't want the pot shop in my neighborhood. I certainly don't want, um, you know, I don't want people doing heroin. I don't want people doing cocaine. I don't want people selling methamphetamines in my neighborhood. And so the easiest, the most popular thing to do is just make it harder. And you just lock them up. You know, let's punish them. And let's, uh, let you, punishing them with five years isn't good enough. Let's punish them with seven years. Seven years isn't good enough. Let's do it with 10 years. And before you know it, you got mostly black and brown people sit behind bars 
for 15 years for selling a pound of weed, something that no one is even scared of. So talk about crazy. Yeah. But you also, when you look at how the laws get made and the people who are representing these constituencies, it is much more expedient to be conservative than it is to be liberal about anything. And so even in highly democratic, highly liberal uh, council districts and uh, legislative districts, you have people making decisions that are far more conservative than you would ever see if people were just to come in and have the power of the ballot um, like we do with our ballot initiatives. And I'm, you know, I'm in Wisconsin right now. So I just, I just came back to Wisconsin a couple of days ago. We don't have a ballot initiative here. We have a, uh, a, a Republican supermajority in the legislature. There's no path to legalization in Wisconsin. Hmm. And people go, oh, my gosh, the, you know, the, the states down south, Alabama and Mississippi and all that. Wisconsin's not. We're going to be the last place to legalize cannabis in this state. And it's because there's no path. There's just no path. And, I, you know, I don't know. If something changes in the near future, maybe that'll be the case. Even with federal legalization, we wouldn't have legal cannabis in Wisconsin because you can't force a state to legalize. Yeah. You know, you can you can make it not a federal penalty. You can it's decriminalized, but just because the feds say it's okay, that doesn't. And that's that's sort of as you go down to smaller units, the state of California can't force the city of I don't know, I'll just say Redondo Beach to license, tax, and regulate cannabis. They can say, we're not going to prosecute you. You're allowed to, but you can't open a business in, in, in these cities that have decided to not legalize. So then you have huge deserts, like the whole Central Valley of California has no cannabis. Um, there are a couple little towns that do have it, but um, we're, 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 in a, we're in an odd little pickle. And the same thing goes from federal to state. You know, they can't force Wisconsin, they can't force Mississippi, they can't force North Dakota, South Dakota, can't, can't force these states to, to legalize. So even with uh, a lack of federal pro, uh, prohibition, we might see states that aren't going to have legal cannabis for, for years. And so we're still going to have cannabis trafficking from California, California to Wisconsin to wherever. There will be interstate commerce amongst the other states that have legalized, but it's still going to be illegal to bring cannabis into, you know, Idaho and Wisconsin and other places that that have no path right now toward toward uh, legalization. Yeah, and you know, it, it. I I appreciate your your explanation because I I think, you know, you're explaining one side of this, which is, uh, you know, like the the real day to day like process of of trying to uh, make something like this happen, whether that's you know eventually legalizing uh, marijuana, decriminalizing it. Uh, you know, on a, on a government level. And I guess like, you know, and I, cause obviously I think one of the more popular theories out there is, um, you know, in like my most pessimistic thinking, cause I'm curious to see what you think when people say, you know, uh, you know, the, the main reason why that they, that certain States and the federal government won't, um, uh, legalize this is because like the the private prison industry uh, needs people to like to lock up and and I guess like in in with what you know are there any like some of these more like you know truly cynical theories are like like is there truth to any of these theories that you've heard 
Yes. There is, there is, there is truth for sure. Um, but it's relatively small. So there are perverse incentives uh, to, for the private prison industry to maintain the status quo, for sure. Um, and we've seen just egregious examples where, you know, you've had private prison industries paying judges to, so they can hit their quotas, you know, send us as many people as you can so we can fill our beds. I mean, just vile, like, uh, you know, we have a contract for a year and a half that says, you know, we've got to fill 100 beds. And we've only got 30 of them full. So if you get if you got people coming in and they're on a wobbler offense, right, where you could go either way, either misdemeanor or felony, can you kick them into the felony so we can, I mean, yes, that stuff has happened. Um, luckily, it's fairly rare. And luckily, I, I, but, but also let's just stop there. Hmm. Think about the harm that was done to the person who was on a wobbler offense, who got stuck in a state bed because the judge was on the take. Like, that's about as vile as you can possibly imagine. Yeah. Now, and I get why people include this into the argument, but as far as like the power of the prison industrial complex to influence federal policy, I, I think that's a little bit of a bridge too far. It's just not that big enough there's not enough money to, and it's also just a really think about that as, as, as a, as a political official, just to be on the take there, uh, to do such things. I mean, that's a career ender. Uh, it's also just an embarrassment to anyone who ever carries your name for the rest of your life. So I, I, I it's, 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 uh, it's a big offense with high impact on a small number of people, but it's also, as far as like moving, uh, move swaying the you know the sort of the, the metronome as it goes back and forth between decriminalization legalization i don't think it's that huge of a force but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't keep an eye on it so secondly um i, I just want us to be really careful about how we're how we're characterizing legalization going forward there's plenty for the feds to get on board with they don't need to in fact why don't we have a federal medical bill? We got like over 90% popularity nationwide for medical cannabis. Almost no one's against it. Why doesn't someone push a medical bill at the federal level? Baby steps. Okay. It's not adult use for everyone. But if we had medical, immediately, you're on schedule three. 280E goes away. We can start talking about banking. We can start talking about a bunch of things just by moving it that far. But the most of the advocacy organizations think that it's not enough, that it's, you know, that we need to go full adult use. I get it. I understand where they're going with this. Um, but there, there's a, there are middle ways that we can go on this. And I, as far as policy options for legalization, something that no state has talked about seriously is government monopoly. Everyone goes, oh, monopoly. That's such a bad thing. I don't know. If you're kind of going, we don't want all the marketing. We don't want all the, you know, we don't want all the ads to the kids with the candies and the and the bright colors and the animals promoting gummies. You want to have you want to have the state. We have plenty of examples of that. We've had lots of states that have had monopolies on booze. Just go up to Canada. Yeah. 
You know, you've got Quebec, you've got a lot of different states where the state has a monopoly on manufacturing or they have restrictions on advertising. We don't have to do this exactly like alcohol. Yeah. In fact, alcohol is not a great model for us to do it. It's something everyone understands. And so it's a real kind of easy way. Let's just regulate it like alcohol. Or as they say, uh, let's regulate cannabis like wine. And it's sort of, you know, one of those sort of selling points to, to legalizing in a certain way. But we don't have to do it that way. Um, there are different ways. We can do this. Uh, you can only grant licenses to nonprofits. Or you can do this all as for benefit or require community benefits so that if you are going to hold a license, you also agree to do after school programs and fund environmental greening or park repairs or whatever it is. And then I also want to give a different plug to just shifting this whole paradigm because I'm a big fan of what we're trying to do with social equity. I'm a big fan of what we're trying to do by righting the wrongs of the war on drugs. I'm a big fan of what we're trying to do in order to getting this right and making the proper apology for the war on drugs and for mass incarceration because it is a conversation that is way overdue. But we don't have to bleed this industry dry by taking tax revenues from it to pay for social equity programs. The we can make the apology with taxes on cell phones and tomatoes. It doesn't have to come from cannabis. So all these small businesses that are trying to get going in the cannabis industry shouldn't be bled dry by these you know, high taxes and regulations in order to support other small businesses. The money can come from somewhere else. And also, where's that money going to? It doesn't all have to go to offering up the Willy Wonka ticket for, you know, the one cannabis retailer in, you know, South LA right. or in San Jose. How about offering up some money to communities that, been, that have been disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs to open up a bike shop or a food truck or to offer college scholarships for neighborhoods that have been over-policed? Like, we can get creative with this thing. We don't have to just like go, oh, okay. And I think we're kind of stuck in this drone mentality like, oh, all right, we'll legalize. We're going to take, we're going to tax at 15%. We're going to take that money and we're going to put it towards supporting someone else to open up a cannabis shop on, on Main Street. And yeah, we should be doing that, I'm sure. Uh, but let's get creative about where the money comes from and where it goes to because the apology doesn't have to come from, they call it taking blood from a stoner. You know, it doesn't have to come all from the industry and it doesn't have to go all to just supporting uh, cannabis businesses. And I, I'm just going to sort of add in a little psychological component to that. If I was arrested and put in handcuffs on my front porch in front of my kids and dragged off and put in a jail cell, I'm not sure that the first thing I'd want my kid doing is opening up a cannabis shop during federal prohibition. Yep. So, I don't know. Maybe I'd like my kid to have the opportunity to do something else. Open a 7-Eleven, you know? I, I just, we, it, we, we've got to, we got to really think about what the lived experience of the war on drugs was for a lot of people and kind of how we're thinking about making that apology. And there's no doubt we should be making the apology, but we got to think about how we're doing it and who's paying for it. Yeah, I, you know, and just yeah, I, this conversation it it made me realize that uh, drugs, you know, are are probably 
as a whole, um, where the U.S. government has failed the most. Like you can look at their policies on any other industry or just any other thing, and I'm I'm not sure if if uh, there's anything like if like if there's anything like drugs that has made the government look like just look stupid really um and and uh yeah i mean because between the war on drugs and um you know how they've handled uh, cannabis and just like the attitude like 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 the the attitude on addiction and and how like we had to go from addicts are losers to realizing uh, you know addiction is it to uh, is is genetic to, and that like 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 us having to slowly gain compassion for addicts because of how the government viewed addicts I, i'm really not sure if there's anything that american government has uh, uh uh like really failed on you know like drugs i i i love i love that you're saying this and this is just such an important thing and um you know Drug addiction, substance abuse disorders are a public health issue. They're not a, it's not a criminal justice issue. And, um, and just think about the way that we've addressed the opioid crisis versus a crack epidemic. Mm. You know, we locked the hell up out of, man, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people over those drugs. Um, the opioid crisis, we've decided we also have a criminal justice response, but we have decided this is a public health issue. And so we're putting public health resources towards this thing. This is a social work, it's a fire department, it's the ambulance, you know, the cops are not the, not the lead agencies in dealing with the opioid crisis. Although there's a lot of criminality, especially with the fentanyl thing, because um, that's, you know, Consumers don't haven't caught up. They don't have the wisdom to deal with fentanyl, you know, kind of the way we do with sort of looking at traditional, like a heroin problem or a or a or a or an opioid problem. Um, that's just one and done, right? You get you get it wrong with fentanyl and you're dead. It stops your heart, stop breathing. That's it, boom. Um, and and that and there and I I I agree. I think there should be a criminal justice response to people who are manufacturing and. and and, and dealing that on, on a large scale. Oh, and you know, uh, uh, before I, I forget, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, uh, go ahead. Because something you just said reminded me of something that's really important is uh, that um, when you, uh, you bring up a, a good point of, uh, of like, like uh, apologizing for that injustice. Um, and the, when I, you know, when you said that, I was thinking, I was like, man, you know, unfortunately, you know, I don't see that happening because if there, if the, the government is to apologize for this injustice that was largely done towards a specific group of people, it would have to fundamentally apologize for the injustices that have been uh, 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 done to these, this group of people um, for all sorts of other things. Like it would have to admit that there was a, a, a bias and in the system fundamentally that led to this issue, uh, like, like this issue is, is, was a symptom of a larger issue of racism uh, in the country. And I'm, you know, and, and that's the only thing I, I, I could see 
getting in the way of apologizing for this specific injustice because it opens up those gates to the larger conversation. Absolutely. So, so let's just look at that for a second. I mean, um, th there's no doubt there's a long history of wrongs done. Um, let's just let's just specifically say to black men. Uh, we can go back to slavery. Uh, there was a short period after Reconstruction where uh, black communities were thriving, elected officials, good businesses. Uh, and then we see Jim Crow, the Ku Klux Klan. We see all kinds of retribution by white Americans against the success of black communities. Um, and then we move right into where our conversation started in with sort of anti-drug rhetoric of the 20s, 30s, 40s, and then going into the war on drugs. And Michelle Alexander, I think, hit it absolutely right when she talked about mass incarceration um, in her book, The New Jim Crow. There are plenty of apologies for us to make. And I think that the thing that we have to be careful of, or we know, that we need to acknowledge, and this is the part where we're in this just surreal conversation about um, talking about uh, sort of racial theory. Uh, and I'm, I'm not going to start, I'm not going to load it with anything more than that, but you have school boards around the country right now trying to stop this conversation where an apology, you, you can't talk about an apology. You can't talk about slavery. You can't talk about the war. You can't talk about Jim Crow. You can't talk about mass incarceration on the backs of black and brown people because you're making me feel guilty for being a white person. And that is the very definition of institutionalizing racism by prohibiting the conversation from happening because you're a school board and you're saying, I'm going to pray. And the evidence is there. High school teachers, middle school teachers, they're not having these conversations. They're not having them about race. They're not having them about sexuality. They're not having them about a whole bunch of things because they're scared about getting criticized and doxxed and, you know, just treated awfully for having an honest conversation. I'm not saying everyone gets it right. I'm not saying I always get it right. I get it wrong all the time. But I try to have an honest conversation. And when we look at the disproportionality of the impact of the war on drugs, and we'll just now I'm just going to focus on the last 50 years, the system was designed to do exactly what it did. This is not saw a glitch like this thing, oh, man, it went wrong. It was like we knew it was happening as it was happening. And we continued to lock up black and brown communities disproportionately at ratios that you can't explain. You know, I'm a social scientist. We collect data. We look at data. We look at margins of error. We try and say, hmm, is there some other way to explain this abnormality in the data? <laughs> no. We're talking about, on average, nationwide, three to one disparities on arrest and incarceration, black versus brown, black versus white. And this is at a time when blacks and whites used drugs and dealt them at almost exactly the same rates. So the, the problem isn't in, 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 in the law. The problem is that it's not enforced on a campus at UCLA the same way it's enforced on Florence and Normandy. It's a different world because there's a bunch of cops driving around looking to 
get people that they think are a public health or a public safety risk. And there's not that same force of officers driving around Westwood looking for public safety risks. And so when we talk about hiring, hey, you know, Clinton said, we're going to hire 100,000 new officers. Bush said, we're going to hire half a million new, you know, more officers, tougher sentencing, all this kind of stuff. Well, the end effect is that we're putting more people, we're putting more cops on the dots, we're doing heat mapping, and we have this self-fulfilling, this biofeedback loop that is, we see more problems, we enforce them more, we're putting more cops in. And the end effect is that we're criminalizing, we're criminalizing being black. Yeah. We're not criminalizing being white because I got into fist fights in school. I smoked weed in college. I got busted for underage drinking when I was 17. Guess what happened? Called my mom. I had my mom come get me. They called, sent me to the principal's office. And the principal said, you're not going to do this again, are you? I said, no. Right? So the difference between that and being a kid in Jackson, Mississippi in the school district is that there's a school site officer. There's a school resource officer. They got PD coming into school saying, oh, Brad, you were fighting this dude out by his locker. We're going to have to bring you in to go see the judge. Oh, the judge is out fishing today. You're going to have to sit in a cell for three days. We'll get to you on Monday. It's not. We're living in two different universes. And so when you're a white American and you're going, well, why? Well, let's just make sure I, I'm racist. I don't see color. Why don't we make the system equal for everyone? You know, we've tried. We've tried to make it equal. We've tried to have equal enforcement of the law. It doesn't happen because we don't implement, we don't create our police departments, and we don't implement the laws equally. So there's not equal enforcement of the law between black and white. And we know that there never has been. And so right now we're at a place which a lot of people go, whoa, 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 whoa. So we're saying, let's decriminalize. Let's recategorize these offenses. Let's get rid of uh, a a, a felony for this. Let's make it a misdemeanor. Let's get rid of the misdemeanor. Let's turn it into an infraction. Because we don't know how to enforce equally under the law. And we never have. Unless there's some sort of magical way that we can get police forces around the country to go, I'm going to sit on my hands on this one, or I'm going to, I'm calling Brad's mom. We're going to have mom deal with this. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. but that doesn't happen and we don't do it. So this, this, I, I, I think we're on to the right thing in changing what we're doing with the law in decriminalizing these things and, and recategorizing these offenses. But it doesn't mean that we should be okay with bad behavior or criminal behavior or people inflicting violence or having weapons when they shouldn't have them or doing things that we don't like or doing things that we're scared of. We, we, should, we should have some way of recti- reconciling those things. But unfortunately, the blunt tool of law enforcement has proven to be something we can't be trusted with. So I, I don't know the answer. And I, you know, I teach criminal justice. I teach drug policy. I don't know the answer. I don't know what we do. But I know that what we have done is about the worst thing we could possibly do. And we got to stop doing it. So I don't know. 
I don't know what I, I don't know what we're supposed to do. Yeah, and, and but I'm glad we're talking about it. Absolutely, and you know, I I you that you know when it goes going back to that thought of like <clears throat> reasons, uh, uh, you know why uh, this might be going on. I mean, the only thing I can think of that's uh, could is is realistic. Is I mean, yeah, I mean it, it definitely. You know the, the the funding of of police departments and and pouring money into that continuously. I can definitely see that as an an incentive, and um, you know, and again, just hearing you talk, like I, I think it's it's uh, sometimes like language doesn't do something justice because I think like for me, like if I close my eyes and I imagine like someone sitting in a cell because they just possessed marijuana like if you like like really like like or like 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 seeing like a human being sitting in a cage like and and you know with the assumption that they're you know they're this danger and all they did was like not even distribute it but just possessed their own for just for their own consumption and like now they're sitting in a cage all day like like it, it's when you just visualizing that, it, it's the, the frustration comes from knowing that it just doesn't make any sense. Um, and yeah, it's un, it's unfortunate that um, yeah, I, th I think the, the 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 one of the the most frustrating aspect of this is is the amount of time it takes to you know to address the the these issues that go back uh, so far, you know, cause like the longer they last, the longer it takes to, to get things going in the right direction. And uh, for people to still just be sitting in a cage right now, even though like, like amongst, it's like common knowledge that weed is, is not this problem that it, that it is on a, you know, on paper is it's just, it's crazy to think that there's people sitting in cages for this. So, so there, there are, <laughs> there, there, there are still people in the United States sitting in cages because of, of possession. I mean, even in the states that haven't legalized, a lot of them have decriminalized. And so it's, it's gotten more and more rare, thank goodness. But our criminal justice system is so broken. Yeah. Um, we, you know, justice delayed is justice denied. And when you get stuck in a jail cell on the presumption of your guilt, you know, we say, we say, you're, 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 you know, you're innocent until proven guilty. Well, try and tell that to someone who can't come up with bail, uh, who's sitting in a jail cell uh, until they can get their hearing. Right. Yeah. And that accounts for a lot of days behind bars for people. And when you have these legacy data systems in different States across the country, that can't even bring a public defender and a prosecutor together, uh, can't even get on the docket to get in front of a judge because it's all not coordinated well. And how, how easy was it for you and I to coordinate this Zoom call, right? right. And, you, and, and you last minute said, oh, we got to try a different Zoom line and I'm going to record this. Come on. Come on. Yeah. This isn't difficult. It's not hard to coordinate three people's schedules when you got a dude sitting in a cage, like, can we kind of light a little fire under our rear ends about this thing? Yeah. Like, can we try and get on this? 
because that's that's where we're we're crossing the barrier from civil rights offenses to human rights offenses. Yeah. When someone is sitting in a cage and when you're in jail, you don't even have the luxury of being in prison where you can go out and walk the yard or go to the gym or you know, you're in a cage. And the pretrial detention thing is something we don't talk enough about. And it accounts for a lot of days behind bars. You know, we got some people who are in for long offenses they're in federal, state, penitentiary, whatever. That's a lot of days for sure. But there's a lot of days of people just sitting in county lockup, sitting in the local tank, waiting to get in front of a judge because a few people can't figure out how to use some talk about talk about an abuse of the system. You got software producers who are like, no, 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 you guys got to use our system because you got a 25-year contract. And this thing doesn't, I mean, you and I on Zoom and Google and whatever, we can figure out how to get people together, how to make things happen, how to sign documents on DocuSign. We can share files. These guys are doing, these guys are working on systems from the 1990s. I mean, and it's, it's, that's criminal. That's criminal that we're sitting here, you know, you got cities paying for software that doesn't do what I could do when I was in high school, like trying to learn how to do basic, uh, you know, an ASCII uh, computer programming. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. That's a whole nother topic, but it it all kind of ties in. The system that we don't want to get people into is that system that's running on the 1990s software that your freedom is dependent upon a few people having, you know, a 15 minute conversation and, Oh, all right. Well, that sounds good. Glad we could all figure this out. And yeah, no, go ahead. Go home. Yeah, man. I know there, I, uh, this is one of those, uh, topics that, uh, you know, you, there's so many different angles you can go into it. And I'm, I'm just really happy with what we've, um, uh, cover today and, you know, with our time left, a lot, I'm, yeah, yeah, really. And, and, and seriously, man, thank you for, uh, making the, the time to, to do this. Cause I, this is such a my pleasure, uh, my pleasure. Wow. Yeah. Such Appreciate an important the topic to me. And I think the last thing, uh, I, I'm, I, I'm just personally curious. Uh, last thing I'll ask you is like, what, um, what led you to going into this line of, of work? Oh man, thanks for that question. Um, yeah. Well, it's it was it's my personal journey. Um, you know, I'm was born in 1970. Uh, got out to LA in '95, so I was 25. Uh, I smoked weed, um, and that was during the, the the early days. And some of it was outside of the licensed market. You know, I had a guy go buy weed from in uh, you know in his living room, and then later on, I got a medical card. Um, and I was one of those people who was, you know, just got the medical card so that I could smoke. Um, so I was familiar with this whole world and I, and there's a, there's a few different things that happened. First of all, I saw cannabis increasing from four or 5% potency up to now we're at like, you're unlikely to find anything under 20%. Yeah. So, you know, where you thought you were sipping on a beer, you're actually drinking Everclear now and you got to be really careful of that. But on a broader sense, why drug policy, why criminal justice policy? In 2000, um, I started working with the homeless population in LA and uh, 
it was sort of a calling. My my uncle had been homeless on the streets of LA when I was younger, and I knew that. And um, I just started uh, helping people write resumes at an organization called Chrysalis. And then I learned a few other things, and I got to start teaching goal setting and relapse prevention and stress management classes. And um, and then that sort of segued into my son was born in 2002, and he was in public schools in LA. And I immediately started seeing this real disparity between kids in public education who had you know lived in nice neighborhoods and where the families were supporting the com computer lab and the school nurse and all this kind of stuff. And uh, the economy dropped out in 08. And I decided at that point that I was like, I really just wanted a change in life. I had been working in the entertainment industry. I was in front of the camera. I was a documentary film producer. Um, I'd been doing all this stuff for probably 15 years at that point. And um, decided to go back to grad school because I wanted to do poverty alleviation and educational attainment, working with young kids to make sure they could, you know, poor kids could, could graduate high school and go on to college or whatever they wanted to do. And I met a guy named Mark Kleiman, who was teaching at the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs. And he was this tall, intimidating person who I had never heard words come out of someone's mouth like that came out of his mouth. It was his logic, his ability to sort of find reason and to find commonalities and to sort of cross between literature and policy and politics and law. And like, I was like, dang, man, who is this guy? And, uh, he allowed me to be his uh, TA. So I, I taught his criminal justice and drug class at UCLA. And I, I said, you know, I want to do educational attainment and poverty alleviation. He goes, yeah, I know. But you can, you can reach the same population in a different way by working on these issues. And I said, really? He said, yeah. Just he handed me like three books. Just read these three books. So I read the three books and I came back and I go, all right, I got it. So he wrote a book called, um, he wrote a few books. One of them was Marijuana Legalization. It was the early days, way before. And then When Brute Force Fails, which was trying to, you know, have less crime and less punishment. And uh, so he and a few people uh, were, were doing this work. And so I decided to study under him. And when I finished my grad school program at UCLA, uh, he was looking for someone who could run his uh, research uh, firm. And uh, so I took that over, ran that for about five years and worked with all kinds of different states on criminal justice issues and trying to do reentry programs and probation reform and uh, learned, learned a whole lot. And then in 2018, started my own business. And uh, that was kind of right as all these states started implementing legalization of cannabis. And so I was sitting right at the right place at the right time. And a lot of people were just like, all right, how do we do this? You know, how do we write the right laws? How do we implement this with a you know, sort of progressive mentality. Um, and so I yeah, started working with cities, uh, mostly in California, on licensing taxation and regulation, and then uh, segued over to working on social equity, uh, technical support and licensing programs for Sacramento and the city of, city of LA. And so now, now I'm working on trying to figure out how to fix uh, the regulation and uh, suppression of the illicit market and try and do that without uh, return of the battle battle days of the war on drugs for the city of LA. So it's it's keeps keeps it interesting and and uh, and of course I always have my students eight years teaching at uh, teaching undergrads at UCLA. So uh, I'm I'm, all, I'm always learning. I'm really I'm always learning. I, I don't I, I try to try to add some good perspective to this stuff, but it's the stuff stuff I was writing about two years ago. And I just wrote the textbook for cannabis policy. Uh, stuff I was writing two years ago. 
no longer relevant. I had, to, had to update it like three times over the last couple years. So yeah, it's all new. So thanks for asking the question. I appreciate it. Oh man, yeah. I thank you for sharing that. And and again, like um I, I just really appreciate you taking the time to just lend your expertise to the podcast. Um and I mean shit, I I definitely learned something today. And uh I'm sure my my listeners did. So thank you a lot for that. Um and yeah, for for people listening, we're uh we're done. But uh yeah, thank you, Brad. Thank you everyone. And uh we're out. Peace.